Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Victoria Stapleton, Executive Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and this is the latest episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I am, without reservation, excessively delighted to welcome today's guest to the podcast, for she is an author whose work I have long admired. And when the opportunity came to publish her works on our list, I may have thrown an undignified fit of excitement in a public place. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners across the universe, please will you welcome Kate Elliott. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here, and I'm super, super, super excited to be making my young adult debut. Your previous series includes Spirit Walker, uh, the Spirit Walker trilogy, uh, which I adored. Although maybe one day when you are on, you and I are in a bar, we can discuss the third volume and how it ended. Uh, also, the novel. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the Spirit Walker trilogy I mentioned, the novels of the Jaron and Crown of Stars, and you are starting in the fall, Black Wolves with Orbit, I believe. Yes. And the cover looks amazing, but your book with LBYR and your YA de- debut is Court of Fives. Kate, can you tell us a little bit about Court of Fives? I can, and I'm going to give two answers. First, I'm going to give the long answer, and then I'm going to give the Hollywood pitch. You ready? I am. As uh, as we're going to talk about later in this podcast, the setting of Court of Fives is inspired by elements of ancient Egypt, ancient Greece and Rome, and the history of Hawaii, as well as by Louisa May Alcott's iconic novel, Little Women. Um, it's it's a young adult fantasy about a multiracial girl named Jessamy who wants nothing more than to run the fives. And the fives is the most popular athletic competition in the country of Afea, where she lives. Now, it happens that Afea is a conquered country ruled by foreigners um, who call themselves patrons, while Jess herself and her three sisters have a commoner mother. Jess meets Lord Kaliakos, who is an upper-class, very high-born patron who also runs the fives, and he needs her help to train. So, of course, their unlikely friendship causes heads to turn, and not in a good way. And when his scheming uncle tears her family apart, she'll have to test Cal's loyalty and risk the vengeance of a royal clan to save her mother and sisters from certain death. So that is the long version, and the short Hollywood pitch version is, or what I call it, is Little Women Meets American Ninja Warrior in a setting inspired by ancient Egypt. I could not love that more. I could not love that more. Little Women Meets, say that again for me. Little Women meets American Ninja Warrior in a fantasy setting inspired by ancient Egypt. <laughs> American, oh, American Ninja Warrior. I, okay. Yes, listeners. Yes, I did. was a child of the 80s, and I did 
watch the the earlier iteration of American Ninja Warrior, uh, which I can't remember the name of it, but they had all those uh, Zap and Pow and 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 Laser and Blazer people uh, in their strange costumes. And I do follow American Ninja Warrior, and I have read Little Women, and I do have a background in uh, the study of ancient Egypt. So this clearly is a book right up my alley. Kate, thank you so much. Um, I find that as we are podcasting immediately after the U.S. women's soccer team triumph at the World Cup, that the emphasis on Jessamy's athletic prowess is really interesting. So uh, one of the things that uh, is fascinating to me about this book is Jessamy as an athletic person, and this feeds into um, discussions of gender. Uh, I think one of the themes of the podcast today could be revenge of the boundaries or stay between the lines. Uh, your work, particularly in the world building, depicts settings in which characters are settled in their social roles, but the plot upends these roles. And I think we see that with Jessamy and Lord Kaliarkos and exposes the agreements and underpinning so agreed on social roles. How do you think about gender as one of these social roles? And can you tell us a little bit about how you go about constructing characters with gender in your writing? You know, when I began writing as a teenager, and that is when I began writing, I didn't set out to write out or work with gender in my writing. But back in those days, it was easy for me to see what wasn't in the stories I love to read. And these were the science fiction and fantasy and adventure stories, and they were about men. And they were focused on men and boys. And maybe there were girls or women as a reward or as an obstacle along the way. And I wanted nothing more as a teen than to see girls getting the same adventures with the same expectations that they could be adventurers and that they would be the center of a big epic story. And, you know, there's so many more stories today that have a central female character that it's easy to forget how rare it was 40 years ago. And at the same time, I should notice that when I was a teenager, I was playing sports. And there weren't, and sports was still a big deal. It was still not a big, it wasn't what it, then what it is today. So I was in that early generation of girls playing sports, and it mattered so much to me to write a story about about girls who were competitors and who were serious about competition. Um, so, so as a writer, it took me a long time to realize that I was commenting about gender and working with ideas about gender um, just from writing stories where everyone could see themselves, where girls could see themselves as adventurers, as competitors, and as determined. I love that. Um, I hesitate to ask your age and I will not ask it uh, because I am of a generation where you did not ask that but I suspect I was reading many of the same stories that you were reading uh, those years ago because I too uh, read a lot of science fiction and fantasy when I was a young reader and I did spend a lot of time thinking about where I would put myself in the story and it was never as an object or a reward and, and some, some stories I found it easier to uh, switch it up and put myself in, in the story. Uh, and others it was more, let us say, challenging. Uh, but I love the idea that we are freer in making space 
for the young reader of whatever gender to to see themselves in the adventure. Um, did you think about anything? You know, you have five sisters in this story uh, of Little Women. How important was it for you to represent different types of interests among girls? It, there's there's four sisters, just mm -hmm. like in Little Women. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question in exactly that way, uh, because I have, over time, discovered that one of the most important things is to see girls and women in multiple roles. It's easy to write, like, what I call the exceptional girl. I am the one girl, and I am the one who can keep up with the boys, and I am the one girl at the center of attention, but I don't have any girlfriends, and none of the other girls are as good as me because I'm special. And it's, it's nice to see a girl playing any role in, in these stories, but we need more. We need a lot of girls so we can have the girl who's shy and the girl who's, you know, uh, determined and the girl who's, uh, who doesn't have confidence. And, and I wanted to do that specifically with, I, I wanted to show the four sisters with their very different personalities. And, so, and over the course of the trilogy, you see how those personalities around Jess, because of course Jess is the central character, um, how they, how she interacts with them and how they push and pull against what she has to do. So I did specifically try to write each sister with the very, you know, there's the studious and very studious eldest sister and the, and um, Jess's twin sister, Bethany, who's a little bit mysterious in the first book. She's very emotional um, and, and angry. And then Amaya, the baby, who's a, kind of a very girly girl. You know, she wants attention and she likes makeup and love poetry. And I loved that, that, that variety. One of my big things about writing women in, in fantasy and science fiction, especially in epic fantasy, which is where I've written a lot of my work over time, it, it, you'll often find these huge multi-volume novels with two feminine characters in them, and one's, you know, a, a sex worker, and the other one is, you know, somebody's blushing bride. I, and, and I think, how many how many women are there in the world, and how do they reproduce if they don't have any women in their stories? And so my basic rule is have enough women in the story that they can talk to each other. So, uh, you know, and, and, and once you have a lot of female characters, then things change, and then they can be different. They don't just have to be the heroine. And the dynamic among the sisters, obviously, Jessamy is 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 interested in sports but and while each sister has her preferences the none of these characters are essentially one thing or another they may have different tastes but they're not only about that jessamy's not only about sports uh bettany's not only about being uh mysterious or 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 interested in the spiritual that each sister you get hints that they have they are multi they are multivalent personalities and they are more rounded than just simply being one element one item right and and the other thing i wanted to show with them is that i wanted to show that dynamic that siblings often have where they they love each other but they also fight and it matters to me to cuz that that feels real to me and and also because 
it's how people do that thing. You, you, you're loyal, but, oh, you're so annoying. You're so annoying, but, oh, no, you're in trouble, so I have to help you. And, and we have that flips in our own lives, you know, with the people who are close to us. I have a long-standing idea of, of YA as a place where uh, young people, uh, teen characters, uh, make that passage into adulthood and see others around them in a more three-dimensional fashion. And one of the elements I appreciate about this book is not only the relationship among the sisters fighting and loving and competing and assisting, but also the idea that over the course of the book, Jessamy is forced to confront her parents not as idealized characters or, or um, uh, what we think of as archetypal heroes, but uh, as people with failings uh, and with, with their own particular interests. So I think you captured that in the narrative very well, particularly as Jessamy relates to her father. I think that's very obvious, yes. but also how Jessamy relates to her mother and her mother's reactions which I think is yes, more subtle I, I, how you did that. I Thank you. I, I really, really wanted to show a book that begins with an intact family because so often people are orphans. They have no connections to people around them. And I know that, and, and that's fine. It's actually a good way to write a story because then you're, you're freed from having, from these entanglements and it makes kind of the plot easier. And it's also an interesting story how you, how do you get along in the world when you're alone? But most of us have family um, or friends who are like family. And these entanglements also make a story more complicated and interesting. And I wanted to, and, and as we grow up, we begin to see our parents in a new light, the way we saw them when we were five or when we were 15, and the way we see them when we're 25 or 50 is a whole different thing. And, and I wanted to try to show that how Jessamy kind of, as she begins to leave this very closed and protected and controlled environment her parents have created, how much she learns about the world, and it isn't what she has thought it was. I began the question talking about social roles, but also the agreements of those social roles and the, and the agreements that we make uh, to inhabit those roles or to, to perform them. And I think the family dynamic you've really brought out uh, very well, the idea in a, in a microcosm about Jessamy has to agree to, I am part of this family and I'm going to relate to these people in this way. And I'm going to fulfill these obligations, um, balancing them against my own, my own interests. And, and, and I think it's interesting how she does that within her family. And then she does that within the setting of the court of fives of the sport. Uh, it, within the the elements of the plot, um, did you think about that microcosm, macrocosm at all with the roles? You mean in the sense that the court of fives itself has a set of rules that she has to that she has to follow in that, order to in order to win? Exactly, and but, why she has to win? It's well, sort of an agreement the, like the, the whole issue at the beginning. Yeah, the whole issue of the beginning is is that even if she's good enough to win, she can't. I think it's you've built so many layers into this. I could probably keep talking to you about this for several hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and one day I will go to Hawaii 
and we can go to a place of quietness and adult beverages and, and do that for a while. But I have another, uh, such a simple question. I'm sorry, readers, uh, listeners, Kate has seen the question ahead of time and she is quietly giggling that I said it was a simple question. Long ago and far away, uh, in, not in a galaxy far away, uh, actually in a school not very, not, not very far away, uh, uh, about three blocks from here, uh, before I was in publishing, I was a PhD student, and oddly enough, I was doing a dissertation in biblical studies on trees and death in the, and the development of the afterlife in the ancient Near East. So when I read Kate's work, particularly Spirit Walker, and then again in Court of Fives, many elements of your work, Kate, were familiar to me <laughs> as themes and motifs and elements. You draw a lot on different historical periods. You've mentioned Hawaii and ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and Rome. Um, I am particularly fascinated by the influence of Hellenistic Egypt and the Mediterranean in the Court of Fives. How, and especially as you have the patrons versus the commoners, can you talk a little bit about your research, but also about how you wanted to express power through how these cultures relate to each other. I can, and um, that's your, your graduate work sounds absolutely fascinating. You know, I, I want to talk quickly first about what's considered general knowledge in a culture and how it's contextual to each culture. And here's a really simple example. When we see a flat two-dimensional map of the world, we're accustomed here in the United States to seeing the Arctic Ocean at the top. And sometimes the Americas are in the center with Asia cut in half. But in Australia, it's, it's Australia's at the top of the map. And it's not upside down. You know, it, it's, it, 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 we would think of it as being upside down, but it isn't to them. So that's, that itself is like we have to think about that all the time. Um, and so we we get acculturated to ideas about who has power and who doesn't have power, and and that's to me one of the most interesting things about the Hellenistic period and uh, with with Egypt and Greece. Um, you know, you and I and some others did a webinar with Holly Black and Barry Liga a few months ago, and I talked a little bit about Cleopatra and how. History created a, a, a false history of her as a sexy seductress who used her feminine wiles to hang on to power when, in fact, she was a hard-headed, hard-headed politician and ruler as hard-headed and intelligent and good at what she did as any of the men who lived at the same time as she did. And so she was a big inspiration to me in the sense of remembering that this Cleopatra as sexy seductress is a standard narrative, and it's one that we become comfortable with, so that when we kind of see what the real history was, we're like, oh, wait, you know, that, that, that's weird. Um, so I actually want to start not with Hellenistic Egypt, but with Hawaii, um, as as you know, uh, I was forced to move to Hawaii when my husband got a job here 13 years ago. You know, Hawaii was once an independent kingdom, but it was annexed as a territory by the American government, and the Hawaiian culture and language was almost lost. And about, 
it, it was probably within it was within like half a generation of dying out completely in the late sixties when uh, and and I a number of young Native Hawaiians kind of in part inspired by that movement, all that great social change that was going on in the 60s, they decided they needed to find out more about where they came from. And they, you know, their own parents who were living in the, the Honolulu and stuff, they didn't know. So they went out to the country and to the small islands like Molokai, and they, they tracked down these old people who still had the la- who had like the last of the knowledge. And they went to them and said, you know, can you teach us? And this still gets me teared up. The old people, the kahuna, said to them, we thought the knowledge was going to die with us. And it's an amazing story of this revival of Hawaiian culture and language. More people speak Hawaiian now than did 50 years ago. And it, living here, when you find out about that, you realize how many cultures get lost like that when outsiders come in and kind of overwhelm them. Mm -hmm. And that really was the deepest inspiration for Court of Fives. This idea that Jessamy lives in this land and the foreigners have come in and kind of pushed their views of how life should be lived onto the population. And so this, her heritage is lost to her. Um, so that's that side of it. And the other side of it is why Hellenistic Egypt. Uh, my husband is a co-director on a project excavating the site of Tel Tamai, which is in the Delta region of Egypt. And this is a, a, a this is a founded in the Hellenistic period when the when the Macedonians and the Greeks under the Ptolemies uh, ruled Egypt. Um, and it, it's just so interesting that I started reading about it and. The more I read about it, the more I saw that this was perfect material. You have this conquering, ruling class that comes in from outside. You have, you know, the Ptolemy comes in with his army and, and deposes the, the last, um, well, Alexander was actually the one who conquered, but, you know, so you depose the last pharaoh of the Egyptians. So now these foreigners are ruling it. And then all these people come from outside to make fortune there because they're privileged. The, the laws privilege the Greeks and the other outsiders who come in to, you know, to join the army, to get land. While meanwhile, the Egyptians, you know, their status, many of the status of many of the Egyptians gets lower than it was before. And, you know, there's so much dramatic conflict in that story, in that as a setting, that I just had to use it. And, and I want to add one other thing. The, um, it, during the when the Romans then took over Egypt after the death of Cleopatra, it, there was actually a law that said that a Roman citizen could not marry an Egyptian. And when I saw that, it was like everything came clear to me. Mm. This is uh, this is particularly interesting to me because from my studies, uh, because we usually think of Hellenistic culture as being one that is equally um, mixing, that both sides are mixing together in a voluntary way. But that's not necessarily the case. And there's been a lot of work done uh, which uh, claims that really the Greeks and later the Romans had no interest in mixing their culture with that of the Egyptians or other conquered peoples, and that this sort of 
uh, Hellenistic culture, this mixture culture, what came from below, from conquered peoples trying to get access to power. And so this is what fascinates me when I look at these stories of how these mixed cultures, these accommodating ideas, maybe that's not right, the right phrase, but this acculturation as power um, comes from people below on the lower end of the scale trying to get access to power to live their lives. And I think it's interesting, uh, Jessamy's encounters with um, the people, the, the, the male characters from her mother's people, they're very insistent on refusing that access. That was an interesting counterpoint to me that you put in to the book. You, you know, and, and there is so much drama in this because when you are the, when you've been pushed out of positions of power, and, and this was true in Hellenistic Egypt, that Egyptians would learn Greek. You had to know Greek if you wanted to get a position in the civil service. And, and I'm not a specialist in, in this field, so uh, I may, some of the things I say may not be uh, up to date mm-hmm. with the most modern scholarship, but, but there was like a limit to how high, at least in the early period, how high Egyptians could even rise, even if they did learn, even if they did join the civil service. And for a long time, Egyptians couldn't be in the army. They were only they were only allowed into the army later when the Ptolemy, the rulers, were getting desperate because they were beginning to fight wars with the Seleucid Empire and they needed more manpower. But the early armies, a lot of them were, and I just used this directly in Court of Five. Young men would come from from Greece and join the army and make their fortune that way. And of course, if you were a Macedonian, you were even like more elevated. You were like the most special, and so and and the kings of these of these had to be from that Macedonian line. So it, it and then meanwhile, the people below they want they want access to the riches too. So they do have to accommodate with the people who rule them now. And in the case of Egypt, there are more Egyptians than there are Greeks or Romans. So you have the whole question of how does a conquering army enforce its rule when it has smaller numbers? You know, they end up, they use force of arms, they control the economy, and they create a cultural sense in which their culture kind of takes over and becomes the dominant culture. It's just so fascinating. And I, and I think Jessamy's reactions to all the different responses uh, to to this conquering, to this to to this encounter between the two cultures is is interesting. And again, going back to, she has to negotiate how she is going to agree to inhabit this world, what the terms of her agreement are going to be, and how what her inner identity is of that. So I, I think you know it's an extreme plot in a number of ways, but I think it, you've managed to crystallize so many of these choices that are that are in many ways very very modern to the lives of beings you know, today. I, I, can I just add one thing to that? Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you, first of all. But I, one of the reasons that she's mixed race is that she is literally, I mean, physically, she's the embodiment of the conflict. She has one parent who's a patron and one parent who's a commoner. So she, it's like her body is where the conflict takes place in that sense. Her, her own, her person. 
and and I wanted, and of course I used that as well in the story. She's torn, you know. She's she loves both her parents. So who who is she? And that's one of the questions that she has to answer. And I love the sense that, and we'll say, readers, uh, there is a certain point at which Jessamy is in a tomb. She is buried alive in a tomb, which is the expression of all the past uh, right there, all of these symbols of the past, of her mother's people. Uh, I don't really like to call them commoners because that's taking over patron language and I'm going to resist. <laughs> but she's there in a tomb that's the perfect expression of her mother's people and values, but she can't inhabit that uh, without conflict. Uh, completely aside from it's a tomb, it's what she's reacting to the 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 tales that go along with that tomb, if that makes sense. Uh, and that really for her, there's no retreating back into simply I am my mother's child or into I am my father's child. She has to press forward into her own adulthood that is a mixture of the two, that is a conscious uh, taking from each and acknowledging of each and a rejecting of parts of each. Um, so and I that is, I think, the journey that every adolescent takes. Absolutely. You know, we all have to make ourselves. We have to find out who we are, each as an individual. And that who we are is part of where, uh, it's where we come from and then how we take where we come from and create this new space for ourselves as we step forward into adulthood. Well, Kate, you have certainly produced something uh, that is a great read. Um, Kirkus called Cortifies a Compelling Look at Racial and Social Identity Wrapped in a Page-Turning Adventure. I could not agree more. And Booklist's starred review says, Let the Games Continue. So I think we are seeing a sequel, yes? Yes, I'm revising it even now. Ah, oh, you have made me so happy. I, I, I cannot wait to see what the future holds for Jessamy and her sisters. Uh, we should not forget the sisters because they, they have their own, their own interests in this competition. They may not be on the court of fives uh, in the world of sport, but they have their own interests to advance uh, and defend. Uh, thank you so much, Kate, for being our guest today on that Little Brown School thank you, podcast. Victoria. Um, we Thank are... you, Victoria. You, your questions were fabulous, and I love talking to you. We will have to do this when we are in the same place. Uh, I will scheme uh, to make that happen somehow. Everyone, listeners across the wide universe and underneath the seas, this has been Victoria Stapleton, Executive Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and with me has been Kate Elliott, author of Court of Fives, soon to be on shelves everywhere, please to enjoy doing yourself a favor and read it immediately. Thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.